um, as we get together today, it's just a blessing to reflect on what God's doing among us and just the, the direction in which he's taking us. Um, we recognize that, you know what, there's a sense of God being at work among us. And it's, it's encouraging. Um, we started the year with a, a week of prayer and fasting. And there are several things that um, a number of us have identified as being direct fruit from that. A direct result of us taking that time to set ourselves apart. Separate ourselves from just life and the generalities of life. And actually be focused more intently on God. And then being able to appreciate that actually through that. God has been speaking to us and working in us um, more consistently and more deeply. So we give thanks for that. God is faithful. <clears throat> and he's true. And yet there's more to be done. And we have a vision as a church to be a healthy church, equipped to disciple and faithful on mission. And so with that, there is always this sense of us being extended toward that vision because we are not in a place and will probably never be in a place where we can say, actually, we're fulfilling that completely and utterly and totally all of the time. You know, our health as a church is defined by how healthy our relationships are with God individually and corporately, and with one another. And so just that in itself is going to put us in a place where we are constantly seeking to grow and do better in that regard. Um, being equipped to disciple. If I was to say to you, look, here's somebody, um, they're, they're you know, inquiring about the faith, they're interested in what it means to be a Christian, um, can you kind of walk them through and, and help them to understand and you know, if they come to that point when they become a Christian and they um, submit their heart to the Lord, um, that you would help school them in what it is to be a Christian. Are you in a place where you'd put your hand up and say, yeah, send me, give me someone. I'm, I'm ready for that. Now, no doubt we're all reluctant servants, even those of us who come and stand up here. Um, but there must be a point at which we're at least ready to trust God and have a go. <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to be the, the, the best at it, but you know what? Of what the Lord's given me, I'm ready to give to someone else. Because that's all that Peter and John had at the gate when the man was there who was lame. Silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have, we give to you. And they declared the name of Jesus, and he was healed. Amen? And so there are these challenges consistently before us. And with that, there are certain things that we need to kind of give attention to as a means of helping us not only evaluate where we're at, but also to um, help us progress towards fulfilling this vision. And so um, Pastor Rob mentioned it um, last week, and um, for February, we have adopted a focus. Now, um, some people may be familiar with some of the monthly focus um, themes that have kind of appeared in recent months. Um, some of you may be 
familiar with this. Stocktober. Stocktober. Yeah. And, and that the, it was a kind of a, a health campaign focused on helping people to quit, um, to stop whatever it is that they're endeavoring to stop that is unhealthy for them. And, um, you know, that, that theme is used to kind of galvanize the focus of the nation, really. It's a kind of national campaign to help people to quit, primarily smoking. Um, but then there's also Movember. Some of you are familiar with that. Probably some of you are so familiar with Movember, you don't even know what it's about. You just know the name. <laughs> I was definitely in that place. What is Movember about? Somebody tell me, please. Prostate, raising awareness of prostate cancer. Okay. I thought it was just men's health in general, but specifically prostate issues. So we see people kind of adopt mumps and rebrand them for the sake of um, the, their campaign. And so we struggled. I can't lie, we struggled. And, and at least I struggled as it related to how do we kind of um, frame our month of February as it relates to our theme for the month. And so, this is the best that I could come up with. <laughs> Disclaimers up front. Yeah. <laughs> Stewberry, stewardship stew pot. It was worth a try, right? <laughs> so our focus throughout the month of February is stewardship. Stewardship. And it's, it's not, a, um, it's not a, a word that people are maybe that familiar with. It's, it's a little bit old school. Um, but in view of stewardship being our focus for the month, um, we're rebranding February as Stewberry. Yeah? It's just clumsy, isn't it, Sarah? Like, Stewberry. Okay. So, at least it's like, it's like one of those um, brands that will stick out in your mind because it's just so awkward. Like, what was it? You've got a credit card called Egg or something like that, and you're like, what's Egg's got to do with credit cards? But it sticks out in your mind. Yeah? <clears throat> and fundamentally, our, our consideration is, how do we, as those under God, understand and faithfully carry out our stewardship as it relates to our relationship with God? And so, um, this morning I'm going to focus, I'm going to kind of introduce and focus on a particular text, which is Luke um, chapter 17, verses 7 to 10. And so I'll read that and pray, and then we'll get into it. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. 
Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Father God, we come before you right now and we thank you because truly you are the master and you have called us into relationship with you. And in this, Lord, we fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. And we recognize that to be a privilege. And with that privilege and with that right, your word says in John chapter 1, to those who believe you gave the right to become the children of God, the power, the authority to become the children of God. With that, Lord, we recognize that not only do we have a right, but we have responsibilities. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would speak to us, and that, Lord, you would um, not only show us, Lord, our responsibilities, but help us to trust you in being able to be more faithful in those things, Lord. We know it's only by your grace. There is nothing that you call us to that you do not empower us to do. And so we ask for your help today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, when we consider stewardship, we have to consider first and foremost the basis upon which we're called to be stewards. Well, actually, I say first and foremost. Let's, first of all, just break down this term stewardship because it's not a familiar term. It's not a term that is regularly used. Um, and it's, I guess, most often used in Christian circles. And so the term stewardship basically look, means to look after another person's property. When you are given something or someone that belongs to someone else um, to take care of, to look after, then you, in that instance, have become a steward. And so in that, a steward can also be regarded as a manager. And we avoid using that term because of the connotations that it has generally. In fact, most often these days, when the term management is used in general life, it normally has negative connotations. And some of you think about that in your workplace, and you, you completely understand why management as a term has negative connotations. And so, if you think about it, apart from it being a, a noun, but more in terms of a, a verb, in terms of something that we do, um, managing. So, it's not necessarily ownership, but it's more managing, organizing, overseeing, and we're a custodian. Um, we've been given custody of something or someone. Um, or caretakers. We're called to take care of a particular thing. And so, in this, this is fundamentally what is meant by stewardship and what we see in the scriptures that we are called to. There are many things in the scriptures <clears throat> that we are um, called to be stewards of. Some of them are obvious and some of them are not so obvious. So, 
Genesis 1, we see man being given stewardship of creation. Go forth and multiply. Subdue the earth. Have dominion. There is a sense in which we are called to be stewards over one another. Um, and so we see the first sons, Cain and Abel, get into issues. God speaks to Cain. Where is your brother? He's calling on Cain because he has a sense of expectation. And Cain's response reveals that. Am I my brother's keeper? He says it in defiance and in rebellion. And yet there is a sense in which, especially in Christ, that we are called to be our brother's keeper. And we see this from the 31 one another statements that are given in the New Testament. Somebody said one for every day of the month. In Luke 19, we see a parable of the talents given and that relating in that occasion to faith. And the fact that we've been granted faith by God. What are we doing with that faith? There is time in Ephesians 5.16. We're called to redeem the time or make most of the time that we have. Gifts and talents, 1 Peter 4.10. Having received from God that which we have, we are to express it generously towards others. Money. Multiple um, references in scripture um, as to how we manage, take care of, and um, steward the money that God has given us. In fact, we see Paul, the apostle, speak of the fact that he was a, a steward of the gospel, which we are all called to be. And yet all of these different expressions of stewardship fundamentally come down to one thing. And that is our very lives are called to be a, a stewardship unto God. Our whole life is to be stewarded unto God. So, in our text, we see the statement made of the servant. And as the Lord kind of paints this brief portrait, this thumbnail of the life of a servant in the household and his obligations and responsibilities to the master, he then turns around on verse 10 and says, So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, when we consider this, and let's look at this more closely, let's really think about what is being said of the servant. Let's examine the servant's experience more fully and more closely. Think about this. Will any one of you has a servant plowing or keeping sheep? Now, this is physical labor, outdoor work, strenuous, and, you know, quite a commitment, quite a challenge. 
<clears throat> and yet it's considered that the servant would be plowing. And often in those days, in the more well-to-do households, they would have animals that the plow would be attached to, and the animals would drag the plow, and the um, <clears throat> servants would ensure that, that the animals are on course and that the plow is functioning properly, and they would be sowing seed behind the, the plow as the furrows or the, 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 the kind of trenches are, are being dug by the plow. And it was laborious work. Keeping sheep in the role of a shepherd. <clears throat> and yet that same servant comes in from the field to a whole new set of expectations. Now, this is the same servant who's probably been up since sunrise. Maybe even not before the sun has risen. Has now come in from the field. And yet, is not invited to come and sit down at the table. Who's going to say to the servant, come and recline with me. Come and just relax. You've been working hard. I can see the sweat on your brow. And yeah, you just need to come and sit down. It's okay. No. This same servant, come and prepare dinner for me. So this is the end of the day now. <laughs> this servant's had a day in the field. And he's coming in. No breaks, no days off. Come and prepare dinner for me. And dress properly. Huh? Hold on. I've just come from the field. So not only are you asking me to come straight in and prepare dinner for you, but I've got to fix my clothes. I've got to go and prepare myself and ready myself in order that I might be properly dressed in order to serve you in a decent fashion. Master's kicking back. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want no smelly field smells around me when I'm eating my food. Just The way you are fixed to go to be in the field is one thing. And when you're serving in the house, it's another. And so this servant's got to prepare the food and prepare themselves and then come and serve the master. Notice, he hasn't had anything to eat or drink yet. Now, he may have had lunch. He might have taken something out with him in the field. But at this stage, he's come in from the field. He's prepared the food. He's a chef in the kitchen. And then he comes like a waiter to serve the master. And only after having done all of that, is then invited to eat and drink. Now, under, under current employment legislation, there's no doubt that many of us would feel that we would have a right to say, that's not in my job description. This is, this is my job description. This is my role. I work in the field, and I, or I tend the sheep. That's what I do. And when I come in, I need to be able to have concluded my job and have some me time and rest and but no we see here 
that the servant had great expectations placed upon them and actually in such a way that it was a thankless task. Does he even thank the servant because he did what was commanded? You know, they say that you don't get any brownie points for doing what you're supposed to do. That's why I feel somewhat challenged sometimes when, for example, I hear um, dads who are um, outside of the home um, being, you know, really commended and praised for looking after their children and, and being a part of the child's life. And on one hand, amen, praise God, they should be saluted because it's a righteous thing. But at the same time, should that be exceptional? Should that be abnormal? Should that be unusual? See, this servant understood that you don't get any brownie points for doing what you're supposed to do. Now, this might seem like quite a demanding and aggressive view of the life of a servant. And yet, look what Jesus says. He says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And in this, we see the secret to faithful stewardship. You see, when we recognize that we have been called as caretakers, as, as stewards, as those who would be custodians of that which has been committed to us, first and foremost, we must recognize that God has given us life. Life that we don't deserve. And in doing so, it is our reasonable service to Give that life to the Lord completely and totally and utterly. Paul says it like this in Romans 12, verse we're very familiar with, I'm sure. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. One translation says it's your reasonable service. And this resonates with the words of Christ that we looked at. When Jesus said, you're simply to say, we are unworthy servants. You see, what is the basis of, of Paul's appeal to the people? What is the basis of Paul's appeal to us as disciples? The mercies of God. Now, a lot of people get mercy and grace confused. If I was to say to you, what is grace? What would you say to me? Open question. Someone says, unmerited favor. Any other ways of expressing that? God's riches at Christ's expense. Listen to Shailen timidly. <laughs> Getting what you don't deserve. So I'm being granted something that I don't deserve. That's grace. 
Now, if I was to say to you, mercy is different to grace, what is mercy? What would you say? Thank you, my brother. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. People say in life, oh, you know, we just don't get what we deserve. And there's, there's truth in that very often. But there is also fundamental truth in that. We don't get what we deserve. And what is it that we deserve? When we think about the context of Romans and what Paul's leading into practical response to what God has done. And what God has done in Romans 3 is given, has given mercy to all who will believe on Christ. Because there is none good, no, not one. There is none that seeks God. All have gone astray. And so we all deserve the judgment of God. We all deserve the fierce fires of God's judgment. Every single one of us. And you know what? It will do wonders to your Christian life if you just meditate on that for a moment and consider the goodness of God. You should be dead, eternally condemned. And there is no reason to do with you that God should be merciful to you and to me. There is, it's not as if, well, you know, God kind of saw in the future that I'd be just really pleasing to him, so I'll give him a chance. No one in themselves and by themselves can please God. And so, just on the basis of, you know what, God has been so good to be merciful, this is a response. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that phrase, living sacrifice, is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Because when you think about the sacrificial system, all the way up until that point, every sacrifice that was offered was always dead. Whether it's an animal, throat slit, blood poured out. Whether it was grain, they would give a grain offering. It was grain that had been harvested and crushed. It wasn't in the ground. It wasn't, oh, here's a field, Lord. It's yours. Even um, like wine offerings and such like would have been grapes that had been crushed in order to produce that. And so, a living sacrifice is, is a notable statement. It's an exception to the norm. Because the sacrifice that ought to be given is one that ought to be dead. <clears throat> this is a statue, um, these are statues that are, are found on the, um, in the area of Fiji. Uh, it looks a bit gruesome, you might say. I mean, why, how would you even make a statue of someone strangling another? Furthermore, doesn't that look like a man strangling a woman? That's a bit crazy. And yet, within Fijian um, 
religious history, they had the practice of wife strangling. Some husbands are saying, huh? (laughs) In the name of the Lord? But they had the practice of wife strangling. That's right, brother. Take every thought captive. Amen. (laughs) And the principle was based on this. That when a, a wife became a widow and her husband passed away, that in honor of the husband, the wife should be sent to join him. And therefore would be strangled, and if the husband had a sibling, it would be at the hands of the husband's brother, if not at the hands of the wife's brother. And this was regarded as an honor. And in fact, great chiefs would have several women um, choked and killed when they died as a... a, um, demonstration or exhibition of their greatness. And this was a a religious practice. I mean, we understand that the taking of life and giving of life to the point of death is not something that's even unusual as far as we understand religious practices. We hear often about suicide bombers those who give their life in the name of Islam and believe that in doing so, they, they, they obtain a greater honor in paradise. You had the Japanese kamikaze pilots in the Second World War who was most, were most highly feared of pilots because they were committed to the death. And so, ritualistic assassinations have been a common theme among world beliefs and religions. And yet, God doesn't require that of you and of me. That in in order to show our real commitment to the Lord, we have to go and commit suicide in some way. Now, God is great and almighty, and he could require that. And having saved us, and knowing that we are assured of salvation, it wouldn't even be unthinkable or unreasonable. Apart from the fact that we know the character of God, and we know that human sacrifice was never accepted by God. In fact, it was an abomination to God. And that God never required human sacrifice. Until one point, until one time, when his son voluntarily gave his life for all who would believe. So that all who deserved to die could have life through his death. And we know from the words of Jesus, no man took his life, but he laid it down. He gave his life willingly and voluntarily. 
as a sacrifice, as a human sacrifice for you and for I in order that we wouldn't have to be that human sacrifice. And yet we see throughout the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, this sacrifice of Christ was prefigured and pictured by the killing of an innocent lamb. And so when Jesus came and walked among men, and as he is introduced to his ministry, John the Baptist cries out, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we're called to be living sacrifices. And having been made holy and having been accepted by God, we are to present ourselves in life in that manner, being who we are and who God has made us to be, holy and acceptable, which is our spiritual worship. This is how we are called to worship God. In the giving of ourselves completely and totally to him. In one translation, it says it like this. Surrender yourselves to God to be his sacred living sacrifices and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart. For this becomes your genuine expression of worship. And so there's this sense of us surrendering to the reality that our lives are not our own. Our lives belong to God and are sacred as such. This is a a spiritual, for want of a better word, this is a religious experience. That our lives be given to him, lived in holiness, and in such ways that cause us to experience all that delights his heart. And so even in doing so, it's not even just that we bring delight to the Lord, but we experience that which delights the Lord and only results in the delights of our own heart. Another version, the message says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. I love that. Because it kind of just breaks down the practicality of this. It's talking about all of our lives, not just our Sundays, not just our morning devotions, not just our evening devotions or our community group attendance or our serving in the teams. Every day, every aspect of life. Placed before God as an offering. And so this is what we're called to. And stewardship comes from a place of appreciating and understanding servanthood. Jesus said it like this. 
in Mark 8 in the call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is, this is the first step. If you're going to come after Jesus, if you're going to lay any claim to being his, to, to, to following in his footsteps, this is what it means. To deny himself and take up his cross. And to, to deny ourselves is more than just self-denial. And that might sound like a contradiction. You know, people are, are kind of getting into Lent and um, we hear people giving up things for Lent. And, you know, I'm going to give up crisps or I'm going to give up my car and I'm going to walk. And uh, people give up stuff for Lent and they do it as a kind of expression of real, um, you know, piety and, and dedication and commitment to the Lord. Um, and yet, you know and I know, you know, there's, there may be even our times of prayer and fasting, you know, we've kind of put aside food and put aside certain social media and so on. And yet, we still have resentment in our heart. We still have bitterness towards this person. We, we still have, you know, um, uh, this, this, this sense of feeling hard done by or, and even though we've kind of put aside these things and we denied ourselves these things, there is still room and an aspect for us to be focused on ourselves and our own satisfaction. And so when Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves, he's not just saying to deny ourselves certain things, but to deny ourselves totally, completely and utterly Why? Because of the corruption of sin. There's nothing good in us. And this corresponds with taking up the cross. Because one who takes up their cross in first century Israel under Roman rule is somebody who is under the death sentence. They're already dead, but it just hasn't happened yet. It's like somebody being on death row. No more rights to appeal. It's just a matter of time before they're in the chair facing execution. They are as good as dead. What is it they used to say in Green Mile? Dead man walking? And that was the notion that was communicated when people saw somebody walking with their cross. When they saw someone walking with their cross, they knew there was no coming back. That person wasn't going to see loved ones go back to their house or their lifestyle or their earnings. All of those things were irrelevant to that person now. Because they were already as good as dead. And so there's this necessity for us to deny ourselves completely and utterly. Recognizing that we are dead. The Apostle Paul said it like this, so helpfully. 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live 
might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus died for all who would believe in him. And having died for all who would believe in him, those who live, believe, no, we live, we should have been dead. He died in our place, a substitute for us. It should have been us on that cross. It should have been you. It should have been me. But he took our place. And so a substitution took place. Not only did he give his life for us that we might live, but now we give our lives in surrender in order that his life would be lived through us. And so we no longer live for ourselves at all, at any time. I was speaking to somebody during the course of the week about just, you know, the challenges of seeing real discipleship in, in, in life today. And, you know, she said, the reality is that, especially in the West, we are people who partition our lives. You know, it's like having a bedroom and you want to kind of make it multi-purpose or create two rooms out of one and you get some plasterboard and you partition the, the room and or you partition your hard drive and you've got one side and we put these partitions up in our lives in such a way that we have these kind of compartments and we say okay this is my work compartment and this is my family compartment this is my, my leisure compartment and um, this is my Christ compartment, uh, as it relates to... And we kind of just want to kind of fit Jesus into the box. And feel good doing that. And yet, that's not consistent with who we're called to be and what we're called to. Because those who live are no longer to live for themselves at all in any sense. And so it's in this that we recognize that this notion of the servant who is called upon not to just work in the field, not to just be the chef, not to just be the waiter, but actually to be all of those things, even at the sacrifice of not having eaten and drunk themselves. This is just reasonable. And Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, and wouldn't it be wonderful if we were to do all that we were commanded? We struggle to do that, let alone having done it, then be able to turn around and say, we're unworthy servants. For some of us, we find that statement offensive. Un unworthy servant. If there's any way in which you find that statement offensive, then it reflects the fact that you don't really grasp the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. 
And so that would be a point for prayer. You see, we are called by the Lord to be his servants. And our whole lives are a stewardship. Every aspect of our life, every aspect of our day, every aspect of our night, all of the time, is to be surrendered and presented to God as an offering. And we will give an account for what we do with this life that God has given. We were looking at this on Thursday. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this isn't the great white throne judgment of the book of Revelation, you know, the scary part at the end. When the throne of God is, is white, it's white hot with the anger, the wrath of God. This is not that. That is for the unbelieving, those who have died in their sin, who stand before the white throne of God's judgment and face his wrath. At such a time, there is, no, there is no more appeal. There is no more opportunity for repentance. It's purely judgment, sentencing. That's it. But for those who are in Christ, we are to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this, the word here for seat is beamer. The beamer seat, not BMW beamer. <laughs> but this is, a, this is speaking of the, the illustration that's being used is the place in the city gates where the elders would come and sit and they would judge cases and it would be civil issues and so we see Jesus will judge his people and this isn't a judgment unto condemnation but this is a judgment unto evaluation or assessment. And so it's as if our lives are... I remember when they introduced MVQs. Some of you are thinking, you're that old. Before MVQs, it was just City and Guilds. Some of you remember City and Guilds, isn't it? And um, I can't remember what the other one. BTEC wasn't even around too tough. But um, I remember when they introduced MVQs and the whole kind of notion of continuous assessment and you kind of build up a portfolio... And then at the end, they assess your portfolio. And, you know, it was blessed for those of us that are academic, not academic and not really down for doing the exams and kind of pouring it all out with great powers of recall. We could just kind of bit by bit do our best and bring it all together and then have time to tweak it and then put it in for assessment and be just like, yeah, praise God. And we get this sense here that our lives are being put together like a portfolio before Christ. And he will look through and say, okay, let's see. Oh, you've done well there, praise be. To my holy name. <laughs> and yeah, you've got a great reward there for that. And um, oh, you flopped here. And you really had opportunity to 
really just show my grace in your life, but you've done your own thing. And you, if you had done that the way you ought to, you would have had this reward, but you're not going to get that reward. And maybe there will be a settling of disputes in which, you know, believers, we have disputes, right? And the Lord will just kind of judge and say, oh, well, actually, in that situation, although you seem to be right, you were wrong because your heart was just in the wrong place. Because remember, the Lord can see our hearts. So this is evaluation on a whole other level. And yet we will be evaluated. We will be assessed. Even in this moment as you sit here, the contents of your heart and mind are being populated in your portfolio. And it's, it's, it's a sobering thought. The Lord who sees and knows all things will call us to give account for the purposes of reward or lack thereof. And so, when it comes to us and our faithfulness in terms of being stewards over what God has given, it's not something that's a, just a, a casual consideration. Uh, we can look into it if we kind of so bother. But, you know, some days I've just got other things to think about. Because there is no aspect of our life, at no time in our life, as a Christian, that will not be evaluated before the Lord. And you know, the amazing thing is this. <laughs> you know, we rejoiced about this. You know, the Bible talks about believers receiving crowns, crowns of righteousness, and so on and so forth. And then at the end, all believers standing before Jesus, taking off our crowns and throwing them at, at his feet, because we realize that any good that we've done, any reward that we've gained is only because of him and his grace at work in us. And so we recognize we're not worthy, we're not deserving, and we'll throw down our crowns before his feet. I say it again, for me, that's, that's, that's the most sobering thought. Imagine standing before your Savior and having nothing with which to honor him. Nothing with which to put before his feet. I mean, being in his presence is going to be wonderful. And we recognize we don't deserve that. But when we come face to face with him who was slain for our sin, all we're going to want to do is worship him and honor him. And what a blessing it would be to be able to honor him with the fruit of his goodness. The result of his grace towards us. And so, there may be times when you kind of feel like, as a Christian, you know what? This just, this just asks too much of me. This, 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 the, the expectations are too high. I want you to think for a minute. Think about Jesus. Think about he who was slain for your sin. Think about him who suffered on your behalf.
and think about what is a reasonable response. You see, Hebrews tells us that we have not endured from sinners like Jesus hostility in such a way that has caused us to have to suffer even unto death. We've not resisted against sin even to the point of having to shed our own blood. And that's why we're called to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus. And when we do that, it really does relieve that sense of burden or heaviness because we realize that he has gone to the uttermost for us. Anything we do is just our reasonable service in response. The giving of our lives is our reasonable service in response. And so that means that your job is not the be-all and end-all of your purpose for living. Your children are not the be-all and end-all of your purpose for living. They are not the reason for your existence. It means having a good career or gaining your parents' approval. That is not the be-all or end-all. That is not the reason for your existence. That is not your supreme priority in life. All of those things are to serve the purpose of glorifying Christ. Glory, the revelation of the utmost importance and supreme impressiveness of God. The utmost importance and supreme impressiveness of God. To glorify God as faithful stewards is to recognize God is greater, more valuable, more beautiful, more beautiful than all other things combined. And to live like we believe that every day in every moment. Our lives are not our own. To the Lord we belong. I'm going to invite the team to come back. Let's stand. <clears throat> Lord God, our lives are not our own. We belong to you. You have purchased us. You have bought us 
out of slavery to sin. You have redeemed us and made us your own. Brought us into your household, into your family. Given us a new name. You have given us the status of sons. And yet, Lord, we recognize that as your sons, as your children, yet still we are your servants. Teach us to be faithful, faithful stewards of the life that you've given us. That our lives would be surrendered and submitted in whole and not in part. And that, Lord, we wouldn't find any aspect of our submission and servitude a burden. But it would be a joy and a delight because we know who you are and what you have done for us. So have your way, Lord, we ask. And help us, Lord, to to refocus and reprioritize our lives in ways that reflect our commitment to your glory over and above ourselves, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.